Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Uh, We're here about halfway through uh, this study of Ephesians this morning. And uh, last week we kind of mentioned that there's a little bit of uh, transitioning uh, happening in this letter that Paul is writing to the Ephesians people. Uh, Throughout our study, we have emphasized this idea that uh, really kind of this common thread throughout Paul's letter to the Ephesians is this idea of union with Jesus. He unpacks everything that this idea means that now by God's grace, we as a people who were far off from him have now been brought together with Jesus, united with him. And this is a spiritual reality, Paul says, has implications for the whole of our lives. It shapes everything about who we are and how we think of ourselves. It shapes everything about our relationship to this God we are united with changes and shapes the way that we relate to one another. And so what he does throughout these first three chapters is really just explain everything about what this idea of union means. And as we mentioned last week, this kind of marks a transition now at the beginning of chapter four, where he's kind of laid this foundation explaining what union with Jesus means. And now we move on uh, to several different areas of really practical application. And so that's why in verse 1, we see this really weighty, hefty phrase. He says, Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's a really loaded therefore, because really what he's doing is pointing back to everything that he has said about this gospel and about this reality of union with Jesus. And he's saying, Now... What I urge you to do is live consistently with the work of God among you. Seeing all that he has done, what does it look like to live consistently? And that's not only kind of the section heading or transition point for this passage today, but really the whole back half of this letter to the Ephesians. And so he picks up several different themes, like I said, these implications of this union with Jesus. And it seems like the issue of first priority was this idea of unity. This idea of unity. You see, throughout Ephesians, we've kind of traced this thread that we are really a diverse people from different backgrounds. And Paul's speaking specifically in this context of this kind of Jew and Gentile divide that's within the Ephesian church. And what Paul really sets the vision for is that we as the church are a diverse people brought together by God's grace into one family together. And now that Paul has kind of explored this idea and shown that we belong to this one family, he realizes that a very practical question remains. What do we do about our differences? Uh, If you are married or have lived with someone for any length of time, it's one thing to think about merging your life together and living with one another and seeing all these great ideas and this love flourish into this new home. It's quite another thing to begin navigating one another's differences. You leave these things out on the counter, and that drives me crazy to the point that I want to, like, jump through that counter. You say this thing in a funny way. Like, merging our lives together comes with a lot of friction, and that's exactly what Paul is speaking to here. What does it look like to actually navigate our differences as one family in Jesus? And so, I want to just begin this morning with what I think is Paul's 
foundational truth that he builds on, and it's this. Union with Jesus necessitates unity for those in Jesus. I'll say that again. Union with Jesus necessitates unity for those in Jesus. And with that at the foundation of this instruction, let's ask the question, how do we actively pursue this unity as the diverse people of God? And what I want to do this morning is just kind of look at Paul's instruction in kind of two sides of a coin. Uh, One, I want to look at this instruction to practice unity in diversity. And then what does it mean to practice diversity in unity? So two sides of one coin here. First, looking at this idea of practicing our unity in diversity. Uh, In these first six verses, that's really where we see Paul highlight this idea. And what I want to do, if it's all right, is kind of take his argument a little bit out of order to start with the premise that he kind of hides beneath all of these things. In verses 2 through 3, we see that he starts off uh, with this list of virtues. He says, uh, with all humility and gentleness and patience bearing with one another in love, this idea of forbearance. He lists all of these these virtues essential to maintaining unity. And, And a really important idea here that I want to highlight is that these virtues of humility and gentleness and patience don't create unity. Paul says they help to maintain unity. Now, why does that matter? Well, if unity is something that we are to maintain and not create, that means that we already have it. If unity is something that we are to maintain, hold on to, pursue, not let go, it means that we already have it. How is that true? Well, that's the thing that Paul kind of orders at the end of this opening section. Look with me in verses 4 through 6. It says this. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul makes the point that because we belong to one Jesus, one spirit, one baptism, one hope, because we confess one faith, we are one people. As God's church, we are one people. Because we are united to the same Jesus, we are already, by virtue of our union with Jesus, united to one another. He uses this language of being knit in together. You think of threads coming together in a piece of fabric, knit together in the family of God. The church is essentially united because we are united to Jesus. And here's what that means for us. Unity for the church is not an optional missional interest. Unity in the church isn't a priority for churches that are more colorful than the one that we are a part of. Unity isn't a trump card to smash dissidents or level our differences and pretend we are all the same. Unity is not some modern moral innovation, nor is it something that we co-opted from the culture. No, unity is an essential identity of a church who has been united to Jesus because we belong to him. Paul wants us to see this profound truth that we belong to one another. 
We belong to his body. That means that we participate as its members together. And so the question for us here this morning, and our question as Redeemer, trying to understand what does it look like for us to live consistently with this truth, our question isn't whether it should be a priority, whether it's even important for us to pursue unity, but to see and recognize this glorious truth about the body of Jesus and really ask ourselves, what does it look like to live consistently with this reality? And so Paul gives us some really practical instructions for how to get there, right? How do we actually do that? That's great. Okay, you've repeated this idea that, yes, we're united to Jesus, and now I understand that means we're united to one another. And so I'm stuck with you, whether you like me or you think I say certain words funny. We're stuck together, whether you get on my nerves or whether you're struggling with this sin or I'm struggling with that sin, and we're just butting heads. We are together. So how do we do it? How do we actually maintain that unity? And it's something that Paul doesn't take for granted or leave up to our imagination to figure out. That's why he says in verses 2 through 3, he lists off uh, four kind of key virtues uh, to living worthily or living consistently with this gospel unity that we have. And most scholars of, uh, of, of the New Testament kind of agree that Paul's sort of creating this ascending line Right? So he talks about humility and gentleness and forbearance, but really he's building up to what is the key idea of unity in the spirit, maintaining the bond of peace. It reminds us a little bit of how he structured the previous passage that we studied last week, where it was, do this, so that, so that, so that, so that. And Paul is kind of presenting these other virtues of humility and gentleness and forbearance as sort of prerequisites or necessary graces in order for us to experience unity in the body. So here's what that means. You won't have unity in the body unless we are also characterized by a spirit of humility and gentleness, patience, and forbearance with one another. Let's look at those one by one. Paul first starts off his list with humility, and I think that's a really important place to start. In order for this unity to actually be experienced and for us to live consistently, we need to be a people characterized by humility. Now, in 21st century America, that has been pretty widely understood to be a, uh, a moral virtue, right? Even non-Christians, pretty much everybody would recognize, like, hey, it's a, it's a good thing to be humble, right? Not to brag about your achievements too much or Think too highly of yourself. It's a good thing to be humble. Now, let me just kind of squash that idea and maybe kind of call the question where it came from, maybe even more deeply, because not only in every part of the world is that not true, that humility is seen as a virtue, but especially in the ancient context that Paul writes this letter to, humility was basically a bad word. You're calling me to be lowly? To be unimportant? To be, to be not the best person ever, you see, humility was this derogatory term meaning low-minded or weak. If you think about this kind of Greco-Roman-shaped world that the New Testament enters into, you might know, based on, based on some background you might have, that that is maybe the ultimate offense. You're calling me to dispense with all of these things that actually make me good, actually help me flourish as a person, and put it all aside and be lowly, be low-minded and weak? What good is it to be lowly? 
I think even in our modern world, any, any honest secularist or humanistic philosopher or person of moral reasoning would have to recognize that there is really no basis morally for unity apart or for unity, excuse me, for humility apart from what is kind of uh, co-opted from the Christian faith. This kind of disrupted and shaped the world, this kind of virtue of humility has no other trace or no other lineage outside of what the scripture says about it. Uh, you know, like if you think about it like this, no Darwinian uh, has any, like no Darwinian imperative exists to be humble. You see, the Bible uniquely recognizes humility as a virtue and an essential posture to serve God wholeheartedly. In the Old Testament alone, there are 250 references to this idea of humility, kind of speaking about its, its essential nature in our posture to God. God not only honors the humble heart that comes before him, but he also, through his judgments, makes people humble. This is essential to the nature of how we relate and respond to God. We know this kind of intuitively, but just understand how disruptive this is to a culture that doesn't have any reason to believe it. But here's where things get a little bit more interesting. Paul's not just saying humility is good to practice before God. He's saying that this same spirit of humility, of willing submission, should also characterize our relationship with one another. Here's why that's such a challenging idea. Understanding vertical humility is easy. It's understandable why you might need to be humble or submissive to a person in authority over you. Of all the things that might be far from from our minds to kind of grasp, it's easy for us to get there to, okay, this perfect God and his holiness, creator of all things, of course I should be humble before him. But it's an even more challenging idea to think about how humility is necessary for us horizontally also. You see, the position that we have with one another doesn't really demand it. We don't have this authoritative dynamic. We don't have this sense of, oh, you're so much better than me that I need to humble myself before you or be submissive towards you. No, it's a much more challenging idea. And Paul's point is that it is required for us to experience unity, that we have this spirit of humility, the same spirit of humility that we would have before God, that we embody that among one another as well. It's a spirit of mutual submission in the absence of something that we might clearly gain. And our example in that, Paul says in Philippians, is Jesus. In Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11, he gives this vision of humility, this vision of seeking the good of other people, laying ourselves aside, that is rooted in the example of Jesus who though he was equal with God, did not count that equality, but but put it aside and humbled himself to even death on a cross for us. Jesus is the ultimate example of someone who transcended the natural boundary lines of humility and humbled himself for our sake. And what Paul is saying by showing us this example is that same spirit should be among us for one another. We should have that same posture. We should have that same heart and mind for one another, that I'm not looking to get ahead of you. I'm not looking to exert my authority over you. I'm not looking to show that I'm better. In fact, I'm emptying myself in some way. I'm setting myself aside that I might pursue your good. 
Our example is Jesus who humbled himself, who showed us what true humility really looked like. And now we inhabit this same posture of self-emptying, self-sacrificial love for one another. You see, if we are to experience unity, we can't have ego or self-interest ruling the day. No, what we need is this posture of Jesus, this true humility of Jesus emanating from us, willing to set ourselves aside, not to be the best in order that we might seek the good of others. I mentioned this last week, but I'll use kind of another example. Uh, being a pastor, I've had the, uh, the privilege of entering into a lot of kind of personal counseling situations. And oftentimes, uh, it revolves around marriages that are within the church. And I mentioned this last week. It's worth repeating again. Of all the things that I thought that I would enjoy about being a pastor, I was like, counseling, that's boring. You, shepherding people, that's, no, I just want to teach the Bible. That was my, my kind of young uh, young. Uh, arrogant kind of seminarian kind of mind was that I'm just ready to learn more about the Bible so I can teach it and maybe be famous for it or something like that. Nobody seemed to think that was that funny. It was laughable in, in my own life, but something that I really enjoy is the opportunity to enter into uh, that relationship with people in the church and really just set a vision for what does righteousness and Christ-likeness look like in this situation that you're walking through. And, and oftentimes, this is a common dynamic and theme in marriage. Maybe you've seen it in your own, that marriage or relationship with your spouse can very quickly become about competition to get what you want, Right? Well, hey, I understand that you want me to be more patient. I could be more patient if you respected me more. Hey, listen, I understand if you want me to date you and show you love and affection and all of these things, I would be more willing to do that if you would do this in exchange. And it becomes this idea of competition, each person, person seeking what is the best for themselves. And often my counsel in those situations, and my counsel to you, if you're in one right now, is maybe something you've arrived at naturally already on your own, is to become so focused on the good of the other person. Become so focused on being a good spouse and serving your husband or wife that you put you, their needs above your own. That at the, at the level of self-sacrifice, you set aside what you think you need, what you, what you feel like you ought to have in order to reciprocate, that you set that aside and pursue. And I'm not saying that dynamic should exist forever. Hopefully something healthier grows in its place. But that's kind of a picture of what this, this kind of symbiotic relationship of two parties showing mutual submission and humility to others might look like. If we're constantly competing with one another, if we're constantly trying to uh, vie for attention, if we're constantly uh, in a competition over airspace in our marriages and in our relationships, what ends up happening is that the spirit of humility vanishes and there's no possible way that we can move forward together. The best thing that we can do and the vision that Paul offers for us practicing this in the church is to set ourselves aside, not to become less important or not to think less of yourself, but as one scholar says, think of yourself less and put ahead of yourself the needs of the other person. Consider them more highly than yourselves. Outdo them in showing honor. That's a spirit that really cultivates unity. It enables it. It's the soil on which unity in the church can grow. So he says not only humility, but also gentleness. Now, even in our world, gentleness is not commonly thought of as a virtue, right? Uh, what gets your head in work? Being disagreeable, right? 
So if you only ever listen to Jordan Peterson, you're like, well, I shouldn't be gentle. I shouldn't be self-controlled. I should just be, uh, I should, I, I'm not meaning to like pick on Jordan Peterson. Don't try to assign me something. Don't put a label on me. Don't, don't do that. Uh, I should be more disagreeable. I should be more assertive. But really, Paul shows forward this idea of gentleness or meekness being a virtue and something that is necessary for our unity. You see, Jesus describes himself as gentle and meek. When Paul speaks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, he lists gentleness or meekness among these things. And I think a common misconception that we have is that to be gentle or meek at heart is to be a weak person. But understand that gentleness is not a weakness. In fact, it's an expression of power. You see, a spirit of meekness is having the right or the power to do and get what we want, but refraining for the benefit of other people. One one person says it this way, to forego our rights for the benefit of someone else. That means like willingly entering into bearing the burdens of one another and putting them above yourself. Not, Not slapping on the wrist or letting your assertiveness take control, but setting those things aside, the things that you feel you need, the things that you feel you deserve and being and being gracious and loving and kind and available for one another that we might bear one another's burdens and and with a spirit of gentleness correct and walk with one another when we struggle and when we fail. And not only gentleness, not only humility, Paul says that we need patience. And here's why. Bearing with one another in love through failures and through weaknesses takes time. It takes time. It takes time for God's grace to work through us. Think about it this way. If, if, if God wanted to and he saw it fit, he could have just zapped us with a little bit of perfection when we came to faith in Jesus. He could have immediately rid us of all the suffering, all the doubt, all the hardship, all the laboring through our, our imperfections and sins, all the, all, the, all the journeying that we would do through these temptations, all of these things. He could have just zapped us and made us perfect. But he saw it fit that through time over this journey that he would mold and form us into the image of Jesus, all the crooked and jagged edges included. And one of the things I I want us to see here is that for us to do that together, for us to operate in that truth and in that reality together as a church, it will take a profound sense of patience with one another. I don't know about you. I don't know your personality type. I'm not even patient with myself. Whatever impatience you have with me right now or ever, uh, I promise you I have like 50 times more right now and every single day of my life. I'm a pretty impatient person and that bleeds out into my other relationships, so sorry. But I struggle to be patient with myself, to understand that I am, I am God's workmanship, that, he is, that I'm being created in Christ Jesus for good works, that, that through my temptation and through my suffering, through the crooked and winding road of my life, God is making and forming me into the image of Jesus. And what I want to look like right now in my life might be more of a trajectory than, happen, than what can happen in a moment. I know that about myself, but it's hard to connect that to my mind and hard often. And if you're wired like me at all, it's even harder to connect those dots for other people as well. You see, we might not only be aware and critical of ourselves of where we fall short, aware and critical of our own failures, 
But often a spirit of kind of criticism can creep into our hearts and we look at that in others with a microscope, with more vitriol, more heat, more scrutiny than we might ever apply for ourselves. And we become impatient with one another, expecting progress when we don't see it, expecting perfection when we can't see discernible progress. And it becomes this self-kind of feeding cycle of cynicism and anger and frustration that really spawns up in our souls this root of bitterness that separates us from one another because we can't see that person for who they are as a dearly loved child of God. All we can see that person for is exactly the opposite of what Jesus sees them as, which is this ugly, broken person who's bothering me right now. We need patience with one another. Understanding that God, by his grace, is shaping and molding each one of us. And that's a progress. That's a journey. We're aware and present in one another's life through those struggles and setting the bar for one another and calling one another to greater righteousness. But by God's grace, exhibiting just incredible patience and love through that. I think if I can kind of connect a thread uh, back to something that Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, I think that this is what he would say about patience is that we ought to be so rooted and grounded in the love of Christ for us that it would transform the way that we think about one another. That we would be so aware, so present in this love of Christ for us that we can't help but emanate that same love and kindness and and graciousness and patience for one another that we are willing to look beyond and practice forbearance with one another. I think that Paul would say, be so rooted in Christ's love for you that you see that Jesus was that same Savior for you. You see that Jesus is that same friend for you. And we show that to one another so far beyond what we are capable of in our own flesh. So I've gone through these things. We see this kind of list of things leading to unity. So Paul's saying, all right, you got to practice these things in order to be unified. And we've explored what that means and why it's important. And now the ever important question, how do we actually do that? Well, if you pull out your phone, I'm going to send you an article on how to be patient and gracious. I'm serious. I'm going to send you an, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to actually send you an article. What we don't need is 10 tips on how to be more gracious. 10 tips on how to be more gracious. Mindfulness meditation practices for how to show forbearance when somebody is just really frustrating you within the church. What we don't need is more of an idea of what that looks like. What we need is the power to actually do it. I had a really challenging weekend being a dad. You know, you know those weekends where you're like, I love you and I want to like throw you at the same time. Like don't, don't hit your kids or throw them or anything like that. But it's like those senses. It's like you've, you've experienced the height of frustration and disappointment and love all at the same time. And it's this weird kind of package where it's like, please just don't do that. Don't be that way right? And I had one of those frustrating weekends this weekend. And even though I like, had this vision for love and patience and graciousness for my kids, I still felt in that moment a complete inadequacy or ability to do that. And I think that that's true for the church. When Paul talks about these virtues, he's not just saying, all right, here's the path. And once you accomplish those things, that's three steps to unity. You got it. Follow humility, Follow generosity, patience, follow forbearance with one another, and you'll get there. No, see that what Paul weaves under the surface is this idea that unity is a work of the Spirit. 
We need the Spirit at work in us to make us humble. Not only before God, because that didn't exist in our flesh, but before one another. We need the Spirit at work in us to make us gentle because we are angry and biting and cold and callous towards one another often. We need the Spirit to grant us a willingness to be patient and show forbearance to one another because despite our own awareness of our sin, we fail to show so often that same grace to one another. This idea of of all of these virtues should lead us to this truth that unity is first and foremost a work of the Spirit in us. And the Spirit helps us not only to know the unity that we have with, with one another through Jesus on an intellectual level, but helps us to live consistently with that gospel reality. In our sin, we can be blinded by our selfishness. In our sin, we can have this sense of superiority over and above one another. We can have an indifference, cold callousness towards one another. And what we don't need are better principles, but instead to have the heart and mind of Christ for one another. And that can only happen through the Spirit at work in us. And so this morning, here's what I want to invite you to. I want you to ask the question, not just where these virtues, which are good, God-honoring, righteous things, might be missing from your life, but specifically ask God for wisdom for how those things in your life, whether present or absent, might be hindering the unity of the church. Ask, ask the Spirit for wisdom to reveal to you where you have an impatient spirit and how that might be affecting your brother or sister in Christ. Ask the Spirit to grant you wisdom to show you where you are less gentle than you think you might ought to be. Ask the Spirit to show you where where you have a sense of pride in your heart that keeps you from practicing and walking in this glorious reality that is ours in Jesus, this one of unity. Ask the Spirit to show us that in ourselves and in our midst. And here's what I want to invite you to practice, is to pray and pray again and pray again And pray again, and pray again, and pray, pray, pray for the Lord to grant you his power to overcome these sins and grant you what Paul says is an eagerness to maintain the unity in the body. Acknowledging our differences, acknowledging the diversity that exists among us, asking God by his spirit to grant us an eagerness and a power and ability to walk in this reality he has given us. And the second thing, to practice diversity in unity. So Paul kind of interrupts this grand thing, this grand vision of unity again to say, well, by the way, you are still different. So lest you forgot all of those things, it's still true. And verse 7, I think, marks this shift into a discussion about uh, our diversity in unity. This is what he says. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And that might seem kind of out of place for what Paul is really doing by instructing us on how to walk in unity. Now he's saying to highlight and acknowledge how we are different according to the grace of Christ at work in us. But here's what I think Paul wants us to see. That our diversity does not undermine our unity, but contributes to it. Our diversity doesn't undermine our unity, but contributes to it. 
Let's get there with Paul. Uh, If you look in verses 7 through 10, uh, what you see are a pretty opaque reference to uh, Psalm 68. Uh, And and here, Paul is kind of, this is something that the New Testament authors often do. They'll kind of create these references to the Old Testament. Some of them are very explicit, like uh, it says in the prophet Jeremiah, so does da 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 Uh, Or they'll kind of give these vague references or allusions to the New Testament. If you want a full taxonomy of all those things in every way that the New Testament authors uh, treat the Old Testament, uh, Ben Holby has agreed to walk you through everything like that after this gathering. And so if you have more questions, you can ask him. Uh, But really what Paul is doing here is taking this passage that doesn't really seem to be about Jesus, but he's showing that it really speaks to this nature of what Jesus is doing in us. And so we don't have time to geek out over everything that's happening with this transformation of meaning happening in this passage. But understand that Psalm 68, Paul is referencing a passage that speaks about God giving like descending and giving gifts among the people. And again, we don't have time to dive into all of that fully, but the point, so I'll give you kind of the the nugget of truth through that, is that Jesus fulfills this role as a giver of gifts to his people. That's what Paul is trying to demonstrate here. If you have questions, we'll talk about it later. But based on this context in verse 11, we know that these gifts are different, right? Because Paul goes on to give all of these different gifts and list them out, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. But he wants us to understand something about the nature of those gifts first. You see, Paul's not trying to just create a spiritual gift survey for the New Testament church to say, well, I did the test online and now I know I'm a prophet, so better start figuring out how I can be a prophet at my church. No, Paul first wants us to understand something about the nature of these gifts. And what he's pointing to when he references back to Psalm 78, or excuse me, Psalm 68, is that we might all be gifted differently from one another. We might have diversity in our practice, diversity in our proclivities or interests in the church, but all of these gifts come from the same giver. So even though we're different, even though we have different gifts and serve God's church in different ways, and he's going to talk about that soon, all of them come from one source and one giver, which is Jesus. And here's what that means. It means that the diversity of gifting in the church is not arbitrary. It is essential and intentional for the building up of the body. If all of these gifts come from one giver, that means that God meant something by doing it this way. This wasn't just like, hey, look, this one got, was born and grew up, and what do you know? He's a teacher. Great. We'll, we'll, let, him, we'll let him teach. And Hey, what do you know? This, this, this woman is really gifted in evangelism. Let's let her evangelize. Oh, look, this woman is such a shepherding heart and shepherding spirit. We'll, we'll let her shepherd know. What Paul wants us to see here is that all of these things find their root and source and meaning and purpose in the giver, which is Jesus. And he has given us this diversity of gifting for a reason. And that reason, Paul says, is to build up the body. Uh, Do you guys remember that one time in like 2020 uh, when the world kind of shut down for a minute? Just a hot second during the COVID pandemic. Well, I was living in D.C. at the time. D.C. was a, well, I came to uh, interview for a role at uh, at a church in Cincinnati uh, during the middle of COVID. And I'll say that when I arrived in Cincinnati, I was like, I don't think they heard yet. Like, 
Something must be different. Uh, Because things were so locked down tight in D.C. that people, like I knew friends that were getting a ticket for $1,500 for leaving without a good reason, like leaving their house uh, without a good reason, just to walk outside. And so things felt so strict and so heavy. Well, I had a friend uh, whose hair was looking a little raggedy, because this was like probably August at this point in time. And he was like, do you guys have clippers? Like, do you you cut your dog's hair, right? And because we were cutting our dog's hair at the time, I said yes. And he was like, what are the chances you could give me a haircut because I have an interview for my fellowship. He was a medical resident at the time. I have an interview for my fellowship on Zoom later today, and I'm just, I'm looking, I'm looking a little whack. And I was like, of course I can. I've done it before. I've given haircuts plenty of times, which was not true. It was kind of true. I had given one haircut before, but I was shaving a friend bald who was balding. And so I had given a haircut with just unfiltered, unadulterated confidence, I told him I could take care of him. I was going to give him a clean fade on the sides and uh, going to fix him up really nice. And I thought I did a really great job. I mean, we were going away and he was like, man, you actually, you did pretty good. I was like, I'm kind of surprised. And I was like, yeah, man, you know, I've done this plenty of times. I'm just like still going with the confidence kind of streak. And uh, he told me later, he went to get a haircut at a barber after things finally opened up. He drove all the way to West Virginia uh, to get a haircut at a barber. And the barber was like, did you do this yourself? Because it was so bad. And in that moment, all that confidence came crumbling down because like, hey, listen, I'm not a good at giving haircuts. That's not my thing. That's not my gift. I think even with learning, I don't have the patience. My hands shake all the time when I hold that was a That was exaggerated. My hands shake when I hold them up. I shouldn't be a surgeon. I shouldn't be giving you a haircut. So don't trust me with that, even if I appear to be really confident. But I was thinking about that this week because it really kind of reminds me that diversity of gifting is a good thing. That's the way really our society operates. You might be a really good doctor. I'm not. So-and-so might be really good at doing accounting. I failed my college accounting class. So we have a diversity of gifting, and that's kind of the way that our world, societies tend to operate. And I think the same thing could be said about the way that the church operates together. Paul is giving this vision for all of us working together in the diversity of our gifting, each one pursuing the ways that God has gifted them for the mutual building up of the body. We work together with one purpose. I think that's exactly why the New Testament uses the imagery of the body. That's really Pauline language, right? That we belong to a body. And the way that Paul describes that in Romans is that we are one body. That was the wrong reference. We're one body with many parts, right? That, we, that a hand can't say to the eye, I have no need of you. We need foot. Feet and hands and eyes and noses and mouths. We need all of these things to work together for the overall functioning of the body. That's the vision that Paul is giving us. It's okay to be not the best at this. It's okay that this isn't your natural gifting or proclivity because God has accounted for that in his diversity of gifting of the body. And that's what he says in verse 11. There's different gifts in the church. He gives this list. The apostles... The prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd, and the teachers, right? The apest, you may have heard it called that before. And what, what is really cool about this list is that you can see how all across the New Testament, all of these gifts were so foundational for the, for the establishment and the flourishing of the early church. You see, it was the apostles and prophets that Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, 
uh, verse 20, I think it is, that, that, we're, that whose message and witness were the foundation of the church, that we are built on the message and witness of the apostles and prophets. All throughout Acts, you see these people, even named the evangelists, going forward and carrying this gospel message together. When Paul writes to all of these New Testament leaders in these churches, he's writing to shepherds and teachers, people who, who walk with the body of Jesus and press them on towards maturity as shepherds in these teachers teachers who keep people away from unsound doctrine and unfit belief and point them to the true realities of the gospel. These gifts are woven all throughout the establishment of the early church, and they are in operation today. God has intentionally woven this plurality of gifting together for the purpose of building up the body of Jesus. And so you might look at this list and say, I'm not really sure where I fit. And I think This is just my conjecture. I don't think that this list is meant to be necessarily exhaustive, but maybe representative. And what I mean by that is I I don't think that every spiritual gift is accounted for in this list because because there's other ones in the New Testament that aren't there, right? But it is meant to be representative of the idea that God has given many gifts to help build up the body of Jesus, that our diversity is intentional and by design. If you are a person who likes to fixate on things like me uh maybe you have an interest in kaleidoscopes like as a kid like i had this little kaleidoscope and i just love this thing i could turn that thing for hours and watch the little pieces move around and make one picture and when this piece moved here these pieces uniformly moved here and when these pieces moved here these other pieces moved here and all of them growing and shaping together all building these beautiful pictures right There weren't of anything specific, but it showed how all of these parts kind of came together and showed off this picture. And it wasn't just something that was static. It was dynamic, right? It was moving and working together. I think that's the vision that Paul has for the diversity of the church, that we are this kaleidoscope picture of the people and family of God who are unique in all of our differences, unique in our gifting, but bound together in this purpose of building one another up into this body that glorifies God. And the purpose, like we said, is the maturity of the body. That's what Paul specifically says here. There's a reason. So all of these, all this diversity finds its similarity in our purpose, and that is the maturity of the body of Jesus. So he gives two ideas about maturity. Uh, verse, first in verses 12 through 13, he says this. I marked so much in this, it's hard for me to tell where I wrote this. Okay, to equip the saints for the work of men. That was not like, by the way, hold on. That was not like a subtle I write in my Bible reference. Like I just study it so much I can't even read anymore. The pages are so worn. I literally just am bad at underlining. Shaking hands. (laughs) Verse 12 says, to equip the saints. That's called a callback. To equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. And I think this language feels very familiar to the end of Ephesians chapter 3. You see, here he's talking about how this union with Jesus ultimately leads to an experience of the fullness of God. That the work of the Spirit that we are fully dependent on is to create in us people who were not emptied of God's glory, emptied of this power, but to experience it in its fullness. That's exactly what Paul is referencing here. In verse 13, he kind of picks up this similar language of fullness to show us something further. That God doesn't just set his Spirit among us who works in us to make us full and complete. He's showing us something further that God's Spirit works through 
through different people through their gifts to make us full and complete. It's not just this disembodied work of the Spirit living in each of us, not interconnected with all of us. No, Paul is showing something further, that the Spirit who lives in us, who is working in us, also works in the lives of other people. God is making us full and complete through the diverse gifting of one another. And he says something similar in verses 15 through 16. He says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, Paul, again, picks up on imagery that he set down in Ephesians chapter 3. What did he say there? He said that we are to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. We talked about last week how this is like an architectural and an agricultural metaphor. That our rootedness, our foundation is in the love of Christ. And that's not only our starting point, it is the whole of our life. And Paul picks this idea up here to show us that that through God's people and our diverse gifting, he is growing us up into the love of Christ. That's not this voyage for us to take on our own to understand the love of God, but God is reinforcing us, reminding us, and working through one another of his love for us that we might press on to maturity in that he is not only making us full and complete through one another through his spirit in us he is making us into people of love transformed by the love of Jesus for us and becoming people of love that he is making us into be and that happens through the gifting of one another Paul is expanding this idea out into the universe to show this is the reality and the nature of how the body works together that all of these Joints and ligaments and arms and legs and all of these parts work together to do this thing. It is a community project that we become the people that God has called us to be. And he's called us to be that for one another. That's what it means to pursue diversity in our unity. Is that we not only acknowledge this and account for it, but we lean into it. We maximize on it. We seek out the gifting of other people that God has given them. We elevate those gifts in our church because we know it is for the building up of the body. And so I just want to give you a couple of points of application here at the end. They're very short. Knowing that God's diversity of our gift, the diversity of our gifting according to the spirit is diverse. I think a couple of things should challenge us here. The first one is this. God has called, equipped, and uniquely gifted you to serve in his body. Not tangentially, not to be on the sidelines, but central to his purposes. God has called and equipped and uniquely gifted you to serve his body. I just want to ask you to consider before the Lord, what is that looking like in your life right now? Do you know that that's true? Maybe is step number one, but how is that true? Like, How has God gifted you? How has God called you to serve the body? What's the role that you play? Is that something that you know? I think what Paul would tell us is that that's pretty vital to understanding how the body works, that the hand doesn't think it needs to be a foot, otherwise the hand will be distracted from hand work. You'll drop everything. But secondly, that was a dumb joke. God has called, equipped, and uniquely gifted others, brothers and sisters, to build you up to maturity in Christ. And so I would just ask you to consider before the Lord, are you seeing this at work in your life right now? 
How are you submitted to and seeking out the gifts and ministry of others in the church? Do you belong to this kind of dynamic with fellow brothers and sisters where you can be built up and reminded of Christ's love, built up into a person of love, made full and complete by the ministry and service of other people? God hasn't intended you to be this way. The poet John Donne said, no man is an island. And I think that's exactly true, right, for the vision that Paul gives for the church. You're not meant to take this journey towards Christ's likeness alone. Paul has gifted you a body, a church, who is meant to build you up just as you are building one another up as well. So I would just ask you to come before the Lord. Ask for wisdom, clarity, and power on what that looks like. But really also boldness and courage to pursue that in the local church. That might be scary. You might not think there's a spot for you. You might not think that there's an opportunity. That may be something that doesn't match your gender. That may be something that doesn't match your background. That may be something that you feel inequipped for. But, but understand that God is gifting you by the power of his spirit, and he will do that work because he intends to do that work in you. Submit to that today. Let's pray. Father, we, we just ask for that in the spirit, that you would help us to know what you have called us to in our diversity point us forward to a picture and vision for unity. And Father, help us to work that out in our differences, in our gifting, in our diversity. Father, help us to see your good and intentional design for us and help us to walk in that, Father. We want to be a people who are served by by one another, built up into fullness and completion. And Father, we know that you have given those gifts among your body to do that. Father, I just pray for a profound outpouring of the Spirit that you would help us to know and walk in what that looks like for us individually and together as the body of Christ. Father, I know that there are teachers here in our midst who have such a a keen understanding of your word because of the Spirit at work in them and a a Spirit-empowered ability to proclaim that word in ways that are helpful and good for the edification of your body but are too timid to pursue it. Father, I pray that you would empower them. I know that there are people here who are gifted evangelists but find no opportunity. Father, I pray that you would, you would empower them to see and understand ways that they can step into that in their lives and in this church. Father, I pray that you would do this work among us. Help us to see and walk in this reality that you have given us. We pray. Amen.